Welcome to Attempting Murder Podcast, a safe space for personal gnosis. Attempting Murder is a monthly podcast reverently dedicated to the Morgan. We come not only as crow women, but as spiritual humans making sense of and finding meaning in our lives. We hope you will join us as we meet in this space to commune with each other and build connection with the greater community. If you have comments, questions, or just want to show your support to this podcast, please feel free to follow us on Twitter at AttemptingMurd1. Join us at our blog at AttemptingMurderPodcast.wordpress.com or emailing us directly at AttemptingMurderPodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is available at anchor.fm slash attempting murder and other regular podcast outlets. If you enjoy attempting murder, please hit the subscribe and like buttons wherever you find us. Our intro music is titled Realm of Hope, composed by Jonathan Segev. You can find this song and many other gorgeous pieces by checking out his YouTube channel. Please check our show notes for a link. Hi, I'm Raven one part of this triune of crow ladies. I am in my early 50s and been a self-identified pagan since 1987. I live in the upper Mississippi Valley with two cats, an adult son, and a fellow pagan roommate. I am a spoonie with fibromyalgia, anxiety and panic disorder, as well as PTSD. I answered the call of the Morrigan in late 1998 or early 1999 My relationship to her has not always been terribly comfortable, but I know I belong with her. I am really excited to be here and working with these two tremendous women. I currently practice as an Irish Celtic neo-pagan with strong reconstructionist leanings. Hi all, my name is River, and I've been heeding the call of the Morrigan for eight uh, very interesting years. Following her is always surprising, rarely easy, immensely satisfying, and I had to be dragged into it kicking and screaming, but I think a lot of you out there can probably relate to that. I live in Western Oregon with three beautiful special needs children, my husband, two dogs, and four cats. I know, not enough cats, right? But I'm working on it. I made an oath to the Morgan before I really knew what I was doing. I was just full of naivete and excitement. (laughs) But I've never regretted being one of hers. And I'm so glad she's brought me together with these wonderful women. I think I'd categorize myself as a Celtic revivalist. I love using historical texts to inform my practices. In fact, I have a degree in history, so I'm a nerd for that stuff. But I like incorporating new ideas and technology into my worship. I think that's important, too. Keeps everything feeling alive. Hi, everyone. I'm Willow. I'm in my early 40s and live in western Wisconsin along the Mississippi River. Uh, My poly family consists of three adults, five cats, and two dogs. I've identified as pagan for all of my adult life, though I've tried on a number of witchy hats. I haven't always considered myself a witch, uh, nor do I necessarily think I am one now. Despite my labeling conundrum, there has been a constant presence in my life, for better or worse, and that has been the Morgan. And you can read more about my call and what she's meant to me on the Attempting Murder podcast blog. We had discussed earlier that we wanted to talk about the Morgan in specific and her relationship to prophecy, either about our own perceptions of that or how we see prophecy and or divination in relation to ourself and our relationship with her. And you will be able to find, just like our readings, the essays that each of us are writing or have written about this specific topic on our WordPress blog. I already posted mine this morning. I finished it last night. Um, I know the other pieces are coming along. 
And so we're just going to give a brief kind of talk about them amongst each other. So who wants to go first? Um, I have a couple of thoughts that aren't super well-formed. They'll be more well-formed in my essay. But um thinking a lot about probably the most famous uh, or I guess the most well-known, most significant like uh, prophecy from the Morgan which is in the Kathmaga Turad. And I don't know if I'm butchering that or not. I think that's right. Um, where she talks a lot about what's to come after this battle against the Fomorians. And the thing that intrigues me a lot is you've got this very stereotypical presentation of the Morgan. She's in a red dress and she has black or like fire engine red hair and, you know, crows and there's skulls and there's all this sort of like gothy imagery and there's nothing wrong with that i know a lot of people enjoy that or they really relate to that side of the morrigan and it is a very real side of her but the prophecy where she's like you know saying what's going to happen afterwards is all about it really is more addressing her sovereignty side she does talk a little bit about like warriors she talks about you know, keeping their spears sharp and keeping the forts in good working order. But most of her prophecy is about prosperity. So she mentions wood. She mentions, you know, branches laden with fruit. She mentions fire. She mentions different kinds of livestock. I think sheep and a bull. And of course, a bull has its own symbolism. I think it very much relates to her as like a holistic entity where she's not just like blood and death and entrails and you know all of that she's she's so much more than that and so much about like earning that prosperity and earning that fertility and earning that that good yield that good harvest through your strength and through your steadfastness so that's something that I came away with that I hadn't really considered from that prophecy before. You know what's really freaking awesome? Hmm. Is we both discuss the exact same thing. <laughs> that was unintentional. We haven't shared our specific topics. Yeah, we have it. And um I I talk about it in terms of first like I I just mentioned that our personal divinations don't rise to the level of prophecy, but that the Morgan in, in the Battle of Mortira is very much functions as the Dagda's bard or as his field, right? So his, his druid, his poet, his chronicler, the chronicler of the entire tribe, in fact. And so at, as, um, River mentioned at the end of the Battle of the Mortira, she, gives this really rousing and beautiful soliloquy, poem, prophecy about the suite of the land when the right and true king sits upon the throne, mm -hmm. when the right and true people are led out of bondage and given their freedom. So it's really about the suite of the, the suite of the post battle because they're fighting against the Fomorians and Fomor rule. And driving them back into the sea so that the people of Ir can be self-determined and their own people. So when she speaks of the sovereignty in this, it's not just hers and it's not just the Tuathas entirely. It's all of the people. Mm -hmm. It's about self-determination and self-sovereignty and the benefits that come from that, which I think is really freaking interesting can when you take into consideration all of our readings as well that we both landed on this, because that is of course like the base of all of our readings too, is taking some responsibility and accepting the mantle of self ownership. Just pretty fascinating. Anyway, and then the rest of it, I, I also go on though to the final of her prophecies from the Battle of Moitura where she talks about the end times and it very much echoes any other uh revelatory end times sort of prophecy about the trees no longer bearing fruit the cows no longer giving milk the men no longer being vir viral the boys shaming their fathers and the girls disowning or dishonoring their families it's about 
all of the things that come from a loss of self and a loss of self-sovereignty. And it also points to something that I think at this time of year we need to think about, which is the cyclical nature of our lives, is that we all have high points and low points and that we are all traversing the wheel. And that while we may have times that are full of good and plenty, we have to expect and fortify ourselves for the times that we are in bondage, either by our own choices or by the constraints of our society or whatever it is. And then that where Hoyer speaks to us is that when we need to defend those boundaries, and we need to to fight back from a position of sterility or inertia and get ourselves back on that in that place that good green earth that good sweet giving earth and that that's a never ending cycle that we can't rest on our laurel because resting on our laurel giving into the desire for sensuality and ignorance and safety in a way that divorces us from our relationship to her specifically kind of how i took it and i felt numerous times in my oh sorry You go ahead. I, I was just going to say I felt numerous times in my life where if I started to stagnate or I started to or I stopped moving forward that she basically would sweep the leg. I'd end up on my ass and I'd have to get back up and I'd have to move forward because she wouldn't allow me to just stay where I was. I completely agree with Willow in that. There's definitely an element to follow when you're one of the Morgan's followers. There's no, there's no long term, you know, building your little hut and gathering your little cows and just growing your crops. There's no point at which you're like all the way done. There's nothing wrong with like resting, you know, with, with getting into a better headspace, that kind of thing. But there's definitely like she will upend the monopoly board. She will dump over the pot. If you're getting too stagnant, you know, if the bottom of the pot is burning, she will dump it out. Um, That's very much what I'm going through in my life right now. I had this long period of stagnation, um, very little claiming my own sovereignty. And she was like, okay, I'm sick of watching this shit. I'm done with this and I'm going to mix it up a bit. And so there's that chaotic energy of like, no, you're never done. You never get to be done. And so the sooner you accept that, the easier it's going to be to deal with these life transitions. Absolutely. And I think there's a risk implicit too in these two very different, but right next to it, basically one and then the other right after it in the Battle of Moitura is that one of the things that's always the danger is assuming that you can avoid the darkness by being clever and being right being clever and being right sometimes it doesn't matter how right we are like you know they they take over and they kick the fulmore's butt but she sees the day when despite their rightness and despite having kicked the fulmore's butt that something really horrible is going to happen and going to have to do it again. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so you can't, you know, and I think for me anyway, you know, in terms of this and understanding it as a cyclical thing is that you got to really, you got really got to roll punches and don't allow your fear to rule you anyway. Oh, absolutely. Ray actually told me this summer after a tarot reading, she suggested that I like, sort of craft some ritual to integrate with my shadow self. And I like never encountered, I'm like a fairly baby pagan as far as these things go. I'm very much like a solitary practitioner and I sort of do my own thing. And so I'd like never heard of this concept. And, you know, when she said that it rang very true. And so I had this whole thing where I, I did this sort of like, I don't know exactly what to call it. I guess a vision where I did have to integrate with my shadow self. And it's like for so long, I'd been in denial about this darker side of me and these negative feelings. And the only thing it does is make your shadow self scream louder. It doesn't really, you know, go away. And the only thing it brings when you're ignoring it and not being true to your full self, to your full sovereignty is just make things more miserable. Yes, very much so. I would definitely agree with that. (laughs) so that's kind of our take willow are you ready to discuss yours (laughs) i am ready to discuss the fact that i have not written one (laughs) hot (laughs) 
Um, I've been reading and reading and reading, and I just tell us what you're reading. Uh, well, I was reading in the um the book of the Great Queen and the lore in there, but I I'm having a really hard time with it because, <laughs> like we've talked about before, Ray, in my past, like. I've not, I've not felt the burning desire to let the lore be the front of or the baseline of my experiences mm-hmm. with her. Right. And so even though I, I've done the reading, I don't really have an articulate way to put anything together yet. Maybe it's just not your time yet. Maybe it, you have to let it percolate a little longer. That happens to I, me sometimes. That's too. probably the case. I and just... I think that's fair. It's big stuff and it's sort of nebulous stuff. So I completely understand. Well, and the other part of it, and, 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 you know, there's going to be some people this and they're going to argue. Yeah, whatever. But, you know, the mythology or the stories, the canonical literature that underpins what is considered reconstructionist thought on Celtic spirituality or Celtic pan-Celtic religiosity or however you want to frame it, and there's a billion ways to do it, and I'm not saying any of them, is that it is difficult to approach often. Mm-hmm. And to really, I think, own it and tease value from it, you kind of have to be able to speak and understand, or at least read and understand Gaelic, mm-hmm. Irish. And yeah, I have a hard time with uh, pronunciations. Oh, well, yeah, we all do. Yeah. This is why you notice I, I let River say <laughs> the Battle of Moitura in, in, in Irish, and I just went with the anglicized version because I'm a little bitch. <laughs> Um, I think we also need to keep in mind that we are not the audience for these texts. The people who are the audience are people who come from an oral storytelling tradition. Yes. um, Where repetition is a big thing. It's not exactly the same thing, but I've done a lot of, a lot of my undergrad was done in like American Indian studies. And, you know, the way you write down oral, oral stories, it doesn't make sense to us as primary literary people sometimes um, because certain sim- symbols and certain repetitions, those are made so that people can remember that story and yeah. pass it on. And so we need to remember too, that when we're reading these stories, we don't have the same, you know, you can read about ancient Celts and Gaelic, Gaelic, ancient Gaelic peoples all you want all day long, but you're not them. You're not living. Them. And so, you know, you'll never have the full context. And so right. just taking from it what you can, understanding it from your life's perspective is really important because mm-hmm. I think there's a danger in trying to be like so rigidly reconstructionist that, you know, you're losing the the meat. Exactly. And I think that it has a tendency to take out what I feel is truly the mystery and the wonder when mm-hmm. we divorce gnosis from text mm-hmm. or text from gnosis, we are in effect severing a connection because these, in particular, let's just dissect the, the, the two poems that we're talking about here that you and I talked about. Mm-hmm. They are constructed in a way and were constructed at the time they were written, which is, I think, the late middle Renaissance when they were actually committed to paper. Mm-hmm. But even before then, because it's discussed at length and other places in Celtic mythology, the value and necessity of the Filda, the, the poets, the bards, and the Druids, that they used recitation and poetry, both meter, rhyme, and construction, specifically to memorize these events. Mm-hmm. Like this wasn't just a cool story that they told and we're getting the bits and pieces. What it is, is really an entire like pneumatic system made for the memory, the collective memory of a people. And absolutely. Unfortunately, so much of that has been it, it, when it was transferred from native speakers to monks and passed along 
it's just as any other his quote unquote historical source without the primary source documents. And when, as you said very specifically, and it's very true, if it's in an oral tradition, you have no documents of of that kind unless you can record it from a native and we don't have a time machine, so we can't go back and ask. If only, um, that would be convenient, right? Right? We're kind of stuck with no primary source documents except stuff that was written many centuries later. Um, by the from, people who weren't, you know, by weren't them, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And who, and, and it is all, you know, filtered at that point also through being conquered and being converted to Christianity. So there are judgments and values that are slid in and the ways that the language is interpreted, even in words that have a Celtic root, the actual anglicized meanings of them are skewed in some ways. And it's no better a representation, which a lot of people will hold up as some kind of thing, of what Julius Caesar um, wrote about the Celts when he encountered them in Gaul. And there's history unfortunately (laughs) is always written by the winner or the one with the pen and so what the fuck did he know and and is it an accurate representation parts maybe but how do we know for sure which and And we have to keep in mind it was politically motivated as well the more justification you have to like conquer people and take over their lands oh well they're savages they're barbarians they're not even using it to the full effect you know yes so you know for you willow to have a difficulty with the whole idea of like digging into these myths and like owning it in some way and tying it your train of your gnosis to it that's neither here nor there you know she spoke to you and you answered and she continues to move in your life Mm-hmm. whether you know those myths or don't. And that does not change the validity of your beliefs. Hot take for Reconstructionists. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> not going to be a popular opinion with everyone who tries this podcast. That's for darn sure. I, and, I, and I'm not trying to be confrontational, but right. I, am, I am saying that, you know, this is a big tent. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that all of us who want to collect under it not start checking ids at the door yeah no gatekeeping is gross in any context but especially personal religious spiritual spiritual beliefs yeah yeah Yeah. shall we move on to our let us (laughs) yeah so um for our next topic we we're going to just talk about the holiday in specific um uh and about what our own personal practices are on or around Samhain. And to go along with this, I think we were also going to write a little bit about what we do and maybe take some pictures of our altars and throw those up on the WordPress blog too. So keep your eyes open for that. And if you are following us on Twitter, you will see little blurbs come through because I will be retweeting anything that we post so that you can can snag it right away though if you are a wordpress user i suggest that you if you're enjoying what we're doing that you go and subscribe to our journal um ever i made everybody else start haven't i mm-hmm. okay so i guess i will so my personal practices for Samhain have almost always included some kind of divination but i am going to give this with a caveat Part of what prompted this podcast at all is that for about the last eight and a half years or so, I have been basically non-practicing. So my religion and my spirituality and my um, dedication to the Morgan has been largely intellectual and a whole lot of lip service and not very much rooted in any kind of practical exploration that sounds exactly like where i've been the last number of years um i think i usually figured out a way to like pour a glass of whiskey and take it out and make an offering and i think that's basically been the like highlight of my sawin <laughs> for a while so this year, I haven't constructed my my altar yet. I was going to erect it tonight after we got done with this because I just felt like I would be really charged up and ready to do that. But 
this year I'm going to do that. I'm going to set up my altar and I plan on spending some more time doing some meditations and like looking at trying to enact some FaceTime with her, even if I can't get a clear enough channel in my head or with her to like do any like visualizations and meditational work. I think I, the very least I'm going to go find myself some crows in a cornfield and get out of the car and sit and just spend some intimate time with them in the, where they're at, like meeting her where she's at. It's been kind of a thing for me. And I don't know about anyone else, but for me, this is a very important time of the year in terms of, um, the basis of a big part of the basis of my personal gnosis, which is uh, ancestor worship. And yep. so um, for the first time in many years, uh, Willow and I are actually going to venture out on the first, I think, and or the second, second and go visit our families, our beloved dad's graves and take some food and leave it as offerings maybe flowers or whatever, but I like take food. Like I go to see my grandma and I always take her a cake donut because she loves cake. Donut. <laughs> and, um, so that's my, that's what I'm going to do. So erect an altar and I, I, I will put a meal here. Um, I did buy some, I bought a big chicken and I'm, I think I'm going to roast it and do some coal cannon because I've got cabbage and I don't think I'm going to put charms in it because it's just, I don't see the point, but I'm going to roast a, roast a capon and make some potatoes and probably make another squash, you know, and nod to my North American origins and take some time to really think about what I have to be grateful for this year and yeah. try to really reconnect with myself in this journey. This, this, this reading was really an eye opener. So I, I feel like it's given me a lot of places to kind of prod. When I when I do this the sow and stuff and in terms of an offering to the Morgan this year I kind of feel like this podcast is it but I'm also working on my spear yes <laughs> um I need to get back to doing some beating so that might be a part of what I do on on sow and eve is like play some witchy music and I'm beating my spear my spear handles and see if I can't get the one finished. Um, as part of my creative endeavor and the offering to her. So that's, that's mine. I'll go next. <laughs> so yeah, kind of like Ray said, um, most of my last mm, seven, eight years, maybe most of it has, of my practice has been in my head. My, you know, my, nod to the holidays mostly is just a a passing by in my mind of oh yeah okay today is lunasa or today is in bulk or whatever holiday it happens to be and then I take a moment to just think about it and then I move on with my day or maybe I'll post something on Facebook saying happy lunasa. Samhain I've done a little more because it's my favorite holiday, but also it ties in for me as well. And and I don't know if I would call what I do ancestor worship. I, I don't know that I like the word worship, but definitely honoring. Maybe there's a little bit of worship in there too. I don't know. But so this year, I don't really have space for putting an altar up. Uh, I won't yet be moved. And so I'm in that transition. And I might take a shelf, like a bookshelf, and take one or two shelves on it and put up some pictures and a candle or two or something at least. And then on the first, I will be joining Ray. I think our plan is to drink some wine and talk about our passed on loved ones. And then we'll go out on the second in the morning because that's a Saturday when I won't have to work and visit the grave sites. And then I will probably spend some FaceTime as well uh, by myself. I'm not sure how or where that's going to happen. I don't have much space inside to myself right now, but if I can find a place to go 
sit under a tree somewhere. I don't know. Depending on how cold it is, I guess, or if we end up with snow. You crazy Midwesterners and your snow in October. <laughs> well, not Although, usually. You guys are so lucky to be close to each other. I'm very jealous. It is nice to be within an hour and a half of each other. We do wish you were closer, too. <laughs> I'll just have to make my way out there at some point. Absolutely. You should you should definitely join us, especially for Samhain some year. Yeah, I love that idea. Um, I'll go next if you're done, Willow. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so I have small children. I guess they're not super small now, but I have five-year-old twins and seven-year-old. And so I like to do a lot of really concrete things that they can relate to. So I think this year is a new one, a new thing that I'm planning, um, that I stole from a friend who did it at a Yule Bay. Uh, but I think it's appropriate for Samhain too. You sort of like write down things that you want to release from this previous year. Uh, and, toss the little scraps of paper into the fireplace. I plan to make a big roaring fire in the fireplace. I want to go out and harvest some hawthorn berries. I know it's like a little bit stereotypical witchy item, but we have a bunch and they're so beautiful. And so I'd like to get some and dry them and kind of save them as offerings when I'm not inspired to offer other things. And I think we're going to make a big feast. It's probably not going to be too complicated, probably like chili and cornbread and some other nice sides, probably on the first. But anything that I do for Samhain, at this age especially, I like them to be involved in because I'm trying to do a little bit of that, you know, deprogramming where they celebrate all these Christian holidays at school or, you know, at least sort of like pussyfoot around them. But, you know, we don't get days off and we don't get time off for the holidays that are part of my beliefs. So I've got to find ways to make them special and accommodate, you know, the rest of the world. So I think maybe we'll do some pumpkin carving too. And I might try to come up with some dumb little craft for them to do. But yeah, especially at this age, it's harder to do like all of the sort of a adult rituals. I don't mean adult like sexy. I just mean, you know, stuff that they will get bored by with their short child attention spans. Um, so I'm really looking forward to it because this is sort of the first year they're going to understand on a deeper level, I think. That is super cool. Yeah, I'm psyched. <laughs> and so are they. That is awesome. Cool. You going to show them how to do a dummy? Yes. Out in a whole bit. That's awesome. Absolutely. That's really great. I think I mentioned just sort of briefly when I was talking about my personal activities generally are or tend to be around Samhain. But for me, in terms of as a spiritual path and as it relates to my um, relationship to the Morgan specifically. Ancestor worship is sort of important because I come from a fairly tight on one side of my family, fairly tight, fairly matriarchal, pan-Celtic family. So my grandmother, her mother was, her name was Lona Oceana Buchanan. <laughs> and her mother was Irish and her her husband was, or her father was Scottish. And so that's a pretty strong thread in those families. And it goes back to the point of being suffragettes and being mm-hmm. temperance leaguers. These were women that were very empowered and very strong and had a very firm understanding of their own sovereignty. And this is kind of the energy that I have been raised with all my life. Unfortunately, too, there are all the things that come with real life that happen to these people in some ways undermined their sovereignty. But in general, I look to this lineage of women that I come from as inspiration and in some ways very much tied to the earthiness of my practices. My great-grandmother knew a bit about folk medicine. A lot of women did back then. It's not any kind of hereditary witch shit. And my grandmother also did. And I learned a lot from her about good foods to eat when you're sick or just things like that. She was really good at that. And she was, she supported very much like grounding for food. She was, she grew up very poor. And so she was 
when the berries were ripe, we went picking because mm -hmm. we didn't have the time or energy. She didn't have the time or energy and nobody did on that farm to grow a big berry patch. So when the black caps in spring come good, we picked black caps. When the wild raspberries came good in June, you picked wild raspberries. And in August, when you could get out and get them, you went and got the big blackberries. And that's where jam came from. <laughs> like, so this is like my experience with that. And the other side of my family, it is important to me too, because on my father's side is it so shrouded in mist. There was a lot of shame in my family about their immigrant, their immigrant status. Some of that was because of their religion when they came here. My father's side of the family, they were almost all kind of fringy Protestants. So they were Wesleyans and, mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of an issue. Wesleyans and Baptists, which a lot of people don't realize, but at the, before the Revolutionary War, these were bad words even to other, pa other <laughs> Protestants. You were not, it was not encouraged to be <laughs> that Calvinist flavor of Wesleyanism and for certain was not embraced. And mm -hmm. there was definitely some question about evangelicals. Um, in the Baptist line. So my ancestors fought for religious freedom when they were here. My ancestors, when he came and brought all of his children from Wales, he, he spent some time in jail and paid a lot of fines in the, in New, in New York colony because he refused to go to the Quaker meeting house. <laughs> and so it's, it's informative to me and my Celtic heritage to acknowledge the things that my ancestors did to bring me here to America, to put me here in this place where I have really put in roots and have a deep spiritual connection to. So it's just like a super important part of my religion. And Samhain is like the time that I can really dig into it. It's a time that I can grab out pictures of my former family that have passed away and put them on the altar. It is a time that I can also put in my spiritual families, the people that I've lost. So, you know, Terry Pratchett and George Harrison and David Bowie and Prince and Keats. And, you know, like there's a bunch of people that whose writing or artwork or political thought has influenced me tremendously. And I feel that my life is I've been given and made more made richer for their existence. I accept them as a spiritual family and make nods to that lineage too. So it's super, it's a super part of mine and a connection to the Morrigan because that is one thing that we know. Um, having been to New Grange personally in it, I know and saw and felt the reverence with which our ancestors worshipped their ancestors and it is a there is an understanding of the contributions of every leaf and every twig on every tree into what the whole of it is and so I can't have my religion and I can't have again without having that too that's my yeah that makes perfect sense and I think you bring up something that I has been on my mind which is that I'm not very connected to my genetic ancestors because I'm just not very familiar with either side of the family. I know I come from a long line of Kellys, but I know nothing about them. Uh, and I come on the other side from a long line of Covingtons, which I believe is a Scottish surname. But again, I, there's just not, not much that I know about them. And I don't know. I just grew up very disconnected from anybody but my nuclear family. But I think it's important to remember that one, as human beings, we're all more related than not. Mm -hmm. All of us are related to each other. I think it's within 50 generations and most of the time it will be fewer than that. Yeah. And you know, there's something to be said for like somebody who is a spiritual ancestor to you, somebody who inspires you. You know, it could be, there, there are all sorts of women. There are men too, but particularly women in my memory that 
you know, I would read about in grade school or middle school or, you know, in later studies, people like Sojourner Truth, very much to me, like a spiritual ancestor, if only because she inspired me incredibly, just an incredible person and such an amazing example of somebody who took their sovereignty very seriously um, and didn't take any guff about it and knowing what you know we all know that she was a woman of color and she lived in a time of slavery but she was well read and she was whip smart and kind of a poet in her own right and so somebody like that to me is somebody that I want to emulate I'll never be as cool as her because I don't have the same challenges and also she I think she's just one in a million but people like that can be a huge inspiration to us. And I think we can honor those people as part of ancestor worship because, you know, that's just important as blood, people who inspire our souls, people who inspire our minds, you know, people who make our, our hearts swell. Those are important people in our life. So even when you're disconnected from your genetic ancestors, you know, either by adoption or maybe, you know, your family really broke away from the rest of the family, whatever the circumstance, or maybe that, you know, you've been abused by family members who have now passed on and you don't want to honor them because you don't feel like that's appropriate for you or that's okay. There are lots of other options that can play into ancestor worship. Definitely when it comes to what you said about they don't have to be blood and bone, basically. It can be a spiritual family, uh, people who inspire you, or if you've had a trauma in your family and you don't want to really acknowledge them in that way, you ha- you can build a chosen family. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, you know, I, I was raised by my dad mostly and a stepmom. My biological mother was not in my life from probably age eight until 35. So I grew up around my dad, my stepmom, step siblings, and then my paternal grandmother, my great aunts, and uh, my dad's sister, my my aunt, my on my dad's side. I've been kind of thinking about this a lot more lately because they are all passed on now. Grandma, aunt, great aunt, you know, all of the paternal side other than my nuclear family with my dad's stepmom and siblings that I grew up with. But even before they were, they were passed, I had for whatever reason, just felt that I needed to have some sort of honoring and an altar for them as my family of origin. And basically not even really acknowledging my mom's side at all because I just didn't know them. I didn't want to open that can of worms. I, I, I just, I put a lot of stock in finding my home, quote, home, in my paternal side of the family. And of course now they are all gone and my bio mom who is my Irish side (laughs) it has been in my life now since 35 and I'm 41 now but we're still you know I mean we're still working that out because that was a long time to not feel connected mom's side of the family uh, last name is Mullen my grandpa on that side who I don't know if I ever met or if I did I must have been very very young within the first few years of my life uh Patrick (laughs) so I know I come from a long line of Irish family on that side that I don't know. And I'm hoping that I can take take the inspiration from my ancestor worship or ancestor honoring and learn more about that side of my family. Hopefully with, you know, a little bit from my mom and her sister, uh, my aunt Sue, who both I get to see on a eh, sort of regular basis, a few times a year at least. We get to spend some time together. I can't remember what I was going to say. I got started on that whole bio mom stuff and then <laughs> yeah. went out the window. It makes me uncomfortable, you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah, it totally get it. Which I think we don't have it down as a topic, but this may eventually make its way to the podcast or at the very least the blog. In some respects, I 
I don't have the same situation as Willow. My mom was still with me. Um, she's with me even when she's not here. <laughs> I, um, I am realizing, I, I came to a, a, a realization. What did I say that? Was that right after fall equinox? Like the, la- not this new moon, but the new moon previous that I said, I, I got this strange feeling that I may have been transferring my relationship with my mother onto my relationship with the Morgan. And that mm-hmm. is why mm-hmm. it always feels so freaking adversarial for me. Yeah, I remember you saying that for sure. And I made a deal with myself. Yeah, it was because my my uncle's funeral and my parents were here and I knew I had to get through this dealing with my mom. And I think that it's something for folks who have trauma to think about too when it comes to this. And I don't know. Um, that is that trauma and relationship to family and really that mother-child bond is pretty intense. And yeah. it... It does color the way that we respond, I think, spiritually to a lot of things. Um, but when we pick a a patron that is female and is as challenging or we're picked, I'm going to argue I was literally plucked up and thrown in a basket. But um, there are reasons for that. And um, yeah. there's a thing about remothering ourselves. That I, I've been working on an essay about. And um, so y- you gentle listeners may eventually find out more about all that for both of us. Yeah. And probably. what that. Yeah. And what's kind that, of central to, to, you know, the spiritual work for me that I'm, yeah. that I'm doing is, is trying mm-hmm. to find my home within myself and get as much past my traumas of mothering and such. Yeah. And remothering ourselves, like reconstructing a mother, our own parts. Absolutely. So, yeah. So that's a thing. Did you have any other thoughts or anybody have anything else they want to wrap up on the subject of ancestor worship at all? I was just going to say, I think I will probably pull out. I, I always have an ancestor altar up except this past year because I've been in this transition and most of my stuff is in storage. So, mm-hmm. but I, I always have one up and it has all of my paternal side of the family on it mm-hmm. and none of my, my maternal side. So that might be something I want to sit with this year and maybe pull out a couple pictures of, or if I don't have any of my own, get them from my bio mom and maybe learn some stories about my paternal or my maternal grandparents and go from there yeah it's a good idea yeah i like that idea a whole lot so that is for all intents and purposes our topics for today we will be dropping another episode and i suppose i explain all of that to you guys here um for those of you who've managed to you know stick with us for the whole of this episode we will be doing these every for each of the months of this coming year it just seems to work out perfectly um which i make some mention of in my essay about about prophecy in the morgan actually but it seems to work out this year that the new moon and the fire fests and feast days all intersect within a few days so this year that's what we'll have will be an episode of month and you can look for it on or between those days between the new moon and the actual holiday or on the new moon or on the holiday, depending on what works for our schedule, since we are in, you know, the Midwest and on the West Coast. And some of us have we children and others of us have big families and a lot of stuff responsibility. So we'll try to work around that, but make it topical and timely for folks. So anyway, thanks, folks, for um, spending the last couple hours with us. And we do wish you a um, happy and uh, interesting, mystical, and amazing Samhain. That's from Ray. This is River signing off. Thank you so much for listening to this first stumbling little episode. We promise it will get smoother from here on out. And I'm looking forward to hearing what everybody else thinks.
about Samhain and traditions and ancestor worship. And uh, this is Willow. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And I guess I will just reiterate what River and Ray have said. We wish you a wonderful Samhain, and we look forward to hearing from you and what you do for Samhain and your traditions. Bye. Bye. Murder is a monthly podcast reverently dedicated to the Morrigan. If you have comments, questions, or just want to show your support to this podcast, please feel free to follow us on Twitter at AttemptingMurd1. Join us at our blog at AttemptingMurder.wordpress.com or email us directly at AttemptingMurderPodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is available at Anchor FM, Attempting Murder, and other regular podcast outlets. If you enjoy Attempting Murder, please hit the like and subscribe button wherever you find us. Our closing credits music is easily provided by Johnny Grimes and is available through Audio Library on YouTube or at soundcloud.com forward slash J-O-H-N-Y dash Grimes.